This is the Darcy Giroux Podcast, Episode 16. Today my guest is Corey Morgan, opinion editor and host of Triggered at the Western Standard. We're talking about some of the crazy stuff making news headlines recently. Corey Morgan, welcome back to the Darcy Drill Podcast. How are things? Very good, thanks. Always happy to be back. Yeah, right on. Um, well, I recorded, uh, I think, well, you and I had plans to record an episode yesterday. It got a little mixed up. Um, I recorded one with Matt Bufton from the Institute for Liberal Studies last week. And you can hear on that episode that I don't sound a hundred percent. Um, I found out afterwards that I have COVID. The whole house had it mm. actually. Uh, the kids got over it real fast in a couple days, but I completely lost my sense of taste and smell. Having, having COVID has done nothing but increase my resolve that not one healthy kid should have missed a single minute of hockey practice for this. So. No, I mean, if there's anything we've seen right from the beginning on this, and let's call it a lucky break as far as humanity goes, this disease spares the young. It, it, it really, they shake it off fast, you know. We should have always recognized that and just let them carry on and, and count our blessings instead of trying to lock down people who are never vulnerable to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, for sure. You know, the rest of the world is so crazy, and it's really tough for me to keep up with uh, these headlines. So I thought to myself, if there's one guy who's on top of some of the headline craziness, it's Corey Morgan. Um, so I'm hoping we can just go over a few different things today that's been in the news, uh, a lot on the federal level. The big one that uh, I haven't been able to pay close attention to, but is obviously making a lot of news, is the Trudeau Liberals handgun ban. I mean, it's totally ridiculous. Legally owned handguns have nothing to do with crime or safety or anything. And one of the main problems I have with it is the the kind of lack of due process that a ban like this puts in place where they're punishing, you know, lawful property owners, because really that's all a gun is, is a piece of property, um, who've committed no crime. I mean, there's, there's, there's no violent action or anything with somebody simply owning one of these things for recreational target shooting or anything like that. But uh, maybe give me your thoughts on this handgun ban. And I know you've had some conversations on your show, Triggered, uh, with a few different people on it. So maybe give me some perspective on this thing. Sure. I mean, it, it infuriates mostly is that... I want to see results-based policy or policy that is designed to address a problem. And this is neither. I mean, we know that. The stats are there. Law-abiding handgun owners aren't committing the crimes. There is no point in targeting this segment of people. And it's ignoring, then, if you're dedicating resources and attention towards the area where there wasn't a problem, you're ignoring the area where there is one. And there is gang warfare breaking out in a lot of urban centers in, in Canada right now. And it's a complicated issue. I mean, that has a lot to do with the addiction epidemic that's going on. It has to do with, uh, again, firearms that are being smuggled up. 
perhaps there's uh, challenging issues with difficulties with integration with young uh, immigrant kids. It seems quite often it's, it's, it's first generation uh, young people who get involved in these things. This is where we want to address then to stop the gang, you know, the, the gun violence, because that's where it's happening. And, and it, instead, we see this, this grab, this virtue signaling going after people who never caused any harm or put anybody at risk. Uh, statistically, I mean, you'll always find an outlier somewhere, I imagine. But the, the, this was a, a solution looking for a problem. And it's criminalizing, as you said, a bunch of law-abiding people that never made a problem in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And how quickly after that uh, evolved shooting that they were able to table this bill, it seems obvious that this thing was written uh, maybe before and they were just waiting for the next crisis, not even in Canada. I mean, this was in Texas. But the next... Once the next crisis hit, they were going to introduce this thing. Um, do, do you have any comment on that? Yeah, because that's exactly what they're doing. And But it does cut both ways. It kind of makes their point a little bit. It is pretty sad when you can draft a bill like that and confidently know at some point, at least our southern neighbors more than likely will be the ones, but it's possible in Canada, as we saw in Nova Scotia, uh, we could see a mass shooting and use that and, and capitalize on the, the sentiment and the emotion of the time and, and ran this bill through and uh, it's cold, it's opportunistic. And again, it, it's just shows uh, ugly politics at its worst. Cause again, they know this, it wouldn't address whatever type of shooting they were waiting for. And they sat in the wings and waited for that to happen. But there is a problem. I mean, I, I was talking with, with Spike Cohen uh, on the show the other day. He's a libertarian, uh, you know, prominent one in the States. And yeah. I've been, I've been trying to get Spike on actually. Uh, yeah. But go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, no problem. But it, it's difficult with the American guests I, I try to talk to because we do have some culture differences. And I do, I try to get to the root. Why is it happening so much down there? I mean, one thing he did point out is they do have 1.2 firearms per citizen down there. They are the most armed civilian population in the world. And you can't deny that that's a factor of it. But I mean, can you seize 350 million guns to try and address that. It's not a realistic approach. That's not going to calm anything or stop anything. Uh, but as well, you know, they've always been well armed, but it seems that these types of school shootings and things are more of a, a new thing, more in the 10 or last 10 or 15 years. So, I mean, there's two problems. There is a problem with shootings going on. And I think we've got to study and figure out what's happening there, or the Americans certainly do. And the other problem is reactionary legislation that's more on an authoritarian basis is just taking advantage of a problem that's happening somewhere else to crack down on law-abiding citizens. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So 1.2 every 1.2 guns for every citizen in the United States. Is that what it was? I believe it's that. It's it's, it's that or 1.1. It's just over one per citizen though, and with the 300 and some million people I think in the states. That's, that's a lot of firearms. It is, for sure. Now so I was looking at some numbers, like the average annual death rate per million. So th like, this, like this is a per capita rate uh, from mass public shootings uh, in North America and Europe. And uh, the United States isn't even in the top 10. It, like, so if we look at this from a per capita death rate, it, it seems to not be... Don't get me wrong, it's still a terrible, horrific number, and every, any one of these things is awful, but it seems to be disproportionately focused on the United States um, 
and I don't I don't know if that is because of their Second Amendment rights, uh, or or what, or because of the uh, anti-gun ownership kind of movement that you're seeing from the left in in the United States and from other countries too. But um, but can but the United States came in at number eleven. And and Canada was was shortly behind at number fourteen. This is the average annual death rate per million people from mass public shootings. Uh, the numbers aren't that current. The most current numbers I could find were from two thousand and nine to two thousand and fifteen. But um, again, what what? Give me your comments on that. Like, what what do you think the the disproportionate amount of focus on the United States is when they're based on population, maybe not the worst place that experiences these mass shootings. Well, I, I think maybe some of it's just that we see it so much more clearly than we ever used to. We have so much access to media of so many forms. So you can see how horrifying it was. You're seeing the ongoing, you know, camera footage and, and uh, just the horror of the whole thing. So that, that really drives it home. And, and particularly the recent one with it being children. It's not somebody, you know, the Vegas shooting in the crowd of people, which is horrible too. But it really just got to people's emotions. Nobody anywhere in the world, in any society, loves to see children murdered. It's awful. Uh, but there's a lot of political play on the go. And we're seeing that. It's divide and conquer. And if you can categorize people on an emotional issue, and that's what Trudeau's doing, and that's what Biden's doing, they'll say, we have to do this, or more children are going to be killed. And if you dare to speak against me, you're speaking in favor of more children dying. It really is that shallow, that fickle. And unfortunately, it's effective. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely, I agree. Um, so the other big headline lately has been uh, Bill C-5. Uh, this is the liberal bill to repeal a number of mandatory minimum sentences, including mandatory minimum sentences for uh, some firearm infractions. Basically, Bill C-5 is uh, repealing any mandatory minimum sentences that do not involve a violent crime. Now, I've heard a lot of screeching from kind of law and order conservative types on this. Um, I'm no fan of mandatory minimum sentencing. Um, give us your thoughts on on mandatory minimum sentencing and Bill C-5? Sure. I mean, I, I oppose actually mandatory minimum sentencing on every crime altogether. I, I do believe, I mean, I'm a law and order guy in a lot of ways, but I want us to build a judiciary and a system then that we can trust and give them that leeway because every circumstance is unique. And when you give mandatory minimums, you can't take into account a lot of mitigating factors in something or I'd like to see broader ranges that are given to the judge where in, in a violent crime in particular, you know, if you're looking at sentencing, it could go anywhere from a month to 20 years. It depends on what the history of the individual is, the propensity for violence, what the crime actually was. Leave that to the courtroom to determine because I, I think there's different uh, types of sentences need, need to be involved. Um, and you use, again, results-based things. I mean, statistically, a guy comes home, uh, find somebody stooping his wife in his bed, blows the guy's head off in a crime of passion. That this is a man that deserves to go to jail. Uh, this is, you know, not acceptable. It's not the way it works. 
but it's probably a person who's exceedingly likely to unlikely to reoffend. That's a you know somebody who could be receptive to treatment and and regret and it was a spur of the moment thing. A person with a twenty year history of violent crimes uh, shoots somebody in an armed robbery, even though it's the first one they've killed. That's one where I think a judge would be saying, you know what, you, you are really incorrigible or, or close to it, and we're going to put you away for for a very extended period of time. And you have to give them that ability because you put a mandatory minimum in there. And you, there's really little sense in even having a judge determine sentences anymore. Now, I don't know if you've read the bill, but there's a lot of talk in it about uh, racism and how this institutionalized racism in Canada contributes to uh, a disproportionate amount of aboriginals and black people and ethnic minorities being imprisoned. Uh, because of these mandatory minimum sentencing laws. Now, 10, 20 years ago, this was an argument that I think every libertarian actually made, that this was the case and people need to pay attention to it. The, the problem is when it comes from the Trudeau government, it occurs as so disingenuous and this terrible kind of vote seeking stuff. Um, I, again, I don't know if you've read the bill, but g- give us your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I haven't read that bill, and I've read a lot of them, but you caught me with one I haven't uh, fully sunk my teeth into on that one. But when you talk about those broader issues, and uh, I, I believe, I mean, th- there's a problem with minorities that are, they're, you know, they're, they're greatly overrepresented, particularly Indigenous people in, in the, the correction system. But you can't deny that they're also... It, the ones that are committing the crimes. I mean, the, the ones that have the repeat offenses. And it's a, a complicated, difficult issue. I, I, to keep pointing it as if it's an institutionalized racism that's causing it, I think, is avoiding trying to deal with the tougher issue, which means that we've got actually some segments of the population who are in a bad socioeconomic positions that leads to a lot of, I mean, they're victims of crime disproportionately as high as well. I mean, the crime levels on reserves are horrific. If you look at the Highest crime cities across Canada, they're all the ones with high indigenous populations. And it's not racism to say it, it's saying, but there is a racial factor, clearly. I mean, so we have a problem and we have to address it. Our First Nations people are not doing well in society as a whole. A lot of them, we're we're not getting along with each other, we're not integrating. Likewise, uh, whether you get in urban centers in Toronto and Montreal, we see a lot of young black people. Uh, again, running afoul of the law, that can lead to prejudices for sure. Then you can see police officers overreacting or racially profiling or targeting indigenous or black people. And, and, and uh, it's an ugly, ugly cycle. But to keep pointing at the system uh, as if or, or to try and say that we should lighten sentencing or corrections on things, that's not necessarily the way to look here. I mean, we, the unfortunate thing is it's a big and complicated problem which so many routes you get all the way down from again how well are we integrating uh uh, young immigrants i mean you can look at the categories you know usually young men in their 20s are the ones that are going to run into difficulties and how do we deal with first nations who are having a really hard time Uh, again predominantly with young people getting into gangs having additions issues Uh, they come off of the reserve they get into the urban areas they have a hard time settling in there's no easy answers for those, but this virtue signaling type policy they come up with and try to say it's as if, and and I'm getting really sick of some of that language saying, Oh, we're all actually inherently white secessionists and white supremacists. And, and we, uh, you know, (laughs) privilege and all that discussion that it's more divisive crap. And it's actually making it worse. 
Oh, without uh, a we, doubt, it makes it worse. Absolutely, yep. Yeah. So we got real issues, but I, I don't like the way they're approaching it or the language. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree completely. Um, let's see what else has been in the news lately. I know I read one. Was it? Uh, I think it was one of your articles on the. The uh, the city of Calgary has now uh, decided that they're going to get in the into the fighting climate change business. Um, oh and, yeah, <laughs> and it looks ridiculous. Uh, you know, these are the people that are. You know, first they should make try and get the uh, roads plowed on time. Uh, make sure you know that they're. Uh, uh, garbage and recycling programs are working properly, but uh, and I don't know a whole lot about their climate change activism in City Hall. Uh, maybe you could fill us in on on what their plan is and give us your thoughts on uh, what the outcome of it is going to be. Sure, I mean they astounded even me, and I I didn't think a lot of them to begin with, but this one floored me. So uh, a climate plan, which as you basically implied, is so bizarrely totally out of city jurisdiction at all in the first place, and at a just a, a staggering eighty-seven billion dollar estimate in a city of just over a million people. I mean, when you worked it up by taxpayer, it was like a hundred thousand ahead, and everybody's going to have to kick in on this thing. I, it's just insane. Yet they're embracing it and they're banging the drums and they want this entrenched. Gondek, uh, the mayor, was furious that they didn't actually fully entrench it into policy and have kicked it down the road to July 5th. Like she feels this has to be done right now. She doesn't even want to have extended debate on an $87 billion plan. This is a plan that's bigger than what Trudeau is trying to do. And you're trying to do it in a city. I, I'm just floored and I'm floored that there's not enough people that are shocked with this. Like, do you understand what they're going to have to do to your tax bill to even take a chip at what they think they're they're, they're going to move with? But we should have seen it coming. I mean, if you if you go, I, you know, I've been big on municipal politics and on Mayor Ninchy's case for a long time. If people go far enough back, there's a document actually that Ninchy took part in about 12 years ago, and it's called Imagine Calgary, and it was a great big. They spent two years of all this consultation with the, well, I'd call them nowadays, that wasn't the term then, but the woke and the usual crowd. And they built this giant pie in the sky thing with these crazy targets and, and all of this ludicrous uh, uh, goals, you know, of getting everybody out of their vehicles. This stuff was all planned and laid out. And Ninchy even said in his first year in, the, in office that this is what models his plans going forward uh, as a mayor. And they put it into what they called the Office of Sustainability Calgary, and they started implementing these things. And still, they didn't take the whole. It looks almost like somebody at the city administration finally said, you know what, we're just going to take the whole thing now and go for it. Because that's how insane it was back then. You'd be looking at tens of billions of dollars if you really wanted to do it. And they're going for it. And it's nuts. It's going to drive people out of this city. I just can't even see where they're going with this. I'm just floored. What, what kind of things are even in this plan? Because honestly, I haven't looked closely enough at it to, to know yeah, well, I mean, some of it's targets, which, you know, then you, that gets you afraid because what are you going to have to do to meet those targets? Uh, they, they, they want by uh, 2050, which is a ways away, but to have no such thing as a combustion engine in the entire city. They want to get rid of all natural gas heating and, and stoves and all of that, all fossil fuel con consumption. They want to make the city itself, the entire city, net zero in emissions. Uh, they want 60% of the population to not own a personal vehicle. So they will always get around either by bicycle or public transit. Uh, 
And again, what sort of means will you have to do to change the, the city and make people do that? And other stuff, and, and that's part of what they're saying, well, don't try to claim this is all just city spending. A lot of this is going to come from the private market. Well, yeah, because you guys also have plans for massive legislation forcing retrofitting of buildings and facilities and possibly personal households. Uh, you know, they're saying, oh, this will this will benefit the economy because what we will do is we will give everybody a grant to upgrade their home furnace, for example, or go electric. Well, yeah, but you're still taking the money out of my pocket. <laughs> you're yeah. just pulling it out and give it back to me and telling me what I have to spend it on. Um, yeah. And there's layers and layers of, of these crazy plans. And I don't imagine they have a hope in hell of achieving them. I'm just worried about how much damage they're going to do in the next three and a half years trying to get them in. I mean, even Nenshi in his wildest progressive dreams never even thought of stretching this far. I, I'm just flabbergasted. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I, I don't know where they plan on getting the electricity from. To be honest, to to you know, unicorns. That's right. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean uh, th that's the discussion that, that that goes in the whole thing all the time. I mean, they're saying everybody, we've got to go electric. We've got to go electric. We've got to go electric. Okay, can we put a hydroelectric down there? No, we can't do that. Well, can we put a nuclear plant over here? No, we can't do that. Well, solar and wind aren't cutting it right now. They're trying to shut down all the conventional generation, and we haven't developed the alternative yet. And uh, this crazed city plan is going to accelerate shutting everything else down. But no, it has not developed what's going to replace it. And uh, that, that's scary. You can do a lot of damage. You can shut stuff down. That's not that hard. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Get, getting it rolling again is the problem. Well, it's a funny phenomenon in Calgary, too, that we have such uh, an ex uh, are they? Do I want to use the term extreme left wing, but definitely left wing politicians in our city council. and you know, for decades, Calgary has been known as the hub of free market enterprise and the oil and gas industry. Uh, you know, uh, Stephen Harper was from Calgary, you know, as prime minister. I mean, this is, and yet for a long time, we've had these nut jobs in city council. Um, comment on that phenomenon. Like, I just, I have a hard time understanding where people's political priorities lie when we're electing people like this as like Gondek as mayor. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of issues that are a problem. Uh, one is, is, is apathy. I mean, just not enough people pay attention on the municipal level and come out and vote or pay attention to the candidates when they're campaigning. And uh, the, so these guys, the problem we get, I wouldn't even call it left, but it's ideologues. If you have an ideology that you know, if you're a smart person, at least strategically, and you've got an ideology, you know you can't sell directly to the voters. They're just not going to swallow it. How are you going to get in? There's no political party you're going to be able to slip in with because they'll find out what you're about and who you're about and you won't win a nomination or whatever. But a municipal with no policy, you can come in and campaign this way and then govern that way once you get in. And when you've got a, a, an apathetic electorate, they don't kick you out unless you really, really blow it. I mean, Calgary doesn't fire their councillors or mayors very often. And Ninchi did exactly that. I mean, he was elected as the pro-business, you know, at worst, a red Tory mayor. And as soon as he was in, he was NDP red. There was no doubt about what Mayor Nahed Ninchi was about. And he knew that. But if he had campaigned on that, he never would have been elected as the mayor. And you got to remember, he Gondek had the same campaign manager. She didn't campaign on a climate plan like that. She didn't campaign on a, a number of the things she jumped in feet first as soon as she became mayor. 
she didn't campaign on on torpedoing the event center. And I'm not a big supporter of the taxpayers being in on that thing. But again, if you're going to get rid of it, you campaign on it. And uh, they, they claim that was just incidental. But no, they knew exactly what they were doing. It was the same sort of thing. They dumped a whole bunch of environmental constraints on this thing that shot the cost through the roof unexpectedly. And that's when they were already teetering and on viability. And that just gave them the escape hatch. They said, hell yeah, we're out. And, and Gondek knew that was going to happen. But she couldn't campaign based on the same with the other councillors. If they'd have worn this on their sleeves, they never would have won those seats. No, you, you could look back on their campaign platform. None of them ever campaigned on this. Yeah, no, it's it seems like a very strange uh, turn in policy to me. Um, so I guess, let's see. The other one I haven't been paying attention to um, is the Conservative Party of Canada leadership race. Uh, for the amount that I have been paying attention to it, um, it seems like between all of the uh, potential candidates, they might make a decent one amongst them if you were to pick and choose policies from them. Um, but I did get a lot of laughs out of your tweets watching the uh, debates between them. <laughs> so, uh, I know the fir- well. Let's the first one was kind of embarrassing. I think because uh, they were at each other's throats and fighting a lot. And then the second one was this total uh, kind of milk toast parody of what a political debate should be, trying to counteract that first one. So, it, g- give us your thoughts on the Conservative Party leadership race. Yeah, it was very strange. I mean, the, the debates, as I said, for those who did catch them, the first one was, I think, from a person who wants to see a boxing match, it was entertaining that way. I mean, these guys were just pummeling the hell out of each other. But you realize if this is an internal party race, you are not doing your, your party any favors by having this sort of display because you're dividing each other further and, and uh, you know, you're, you're going to have a lot of wounds to lick after all of this. And, yeah, they, they counter-reacted or overreacted in the next one with this over moderated weird you know sad trombone being played if you mentioned another candidate and and asking stupid questions you know what's the last book you were what's your favorite color i mean i don't know what else they were going to be asking and that you know what's the god you know do you wipe from front to back do you wipe from like they just were way out there it had nothing to do with uh, the, the reason people were just as disappointed with that as the first one and it's very serious, though. I mean, the, the, the person leading that is going to be the contender, probably the prime contender to try and win the next election. Um, it's it's turning into a very ugly race, and this party is going to be very split no matter who wins it at the end of it. And, and I've been observing it. Uh, Jean Charest coming from the, the red Tory uh, angle. To be honest, I've had him on the show a couple times. I, I kind of respect the man. He's a, he does shoot kind of straight. He doesn't make bones about what he is or what he does, and he certainly does have an impressive – uh, experience set. He's, he's still a little too left for, for my liking and too establishment by a long shot. But as an sure. individual, I found I found him actually respectable, though. I, I agree. I vote for. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I I agree. I think uh, you know. Again, I wouldn't. Jean Schrey wouldn't be my first pick, but I think uh, he makes no qualms about this is this is politics, and you have to make compromises. And I don't know. And his his. You know, he wears that on his sleeves, like he's he's trying to, uh, you know, do something that the majority of Canadians can get behind. 
Yeah, and, and he's making his case. And and then on the other end, uh, Polyev is, is playing a purely populist campaign. He's doing it very effectively. And, and uh, he is, is making his points. He's, he's attacking the establishment, or at least, uh, you know, so, uh, superficially. I think some of it's not as uh, you know, deeply cutting as people might realize. Uh, he, he's not quite as anti-establishment as some might think, but he's going after the Bank of Canada and, and talking outright about defunding the CBC, things like that, big, big institutions. Uh, but again, he's doing the the method of, uh, well, you could say similar to Bernie or, or even Trump when you're playing populism and you're getting a lot of people really worked up though and hyped and it works and it gets them out to vote and help you win. But again, it's dividing that party and you got to wonder what you're going to be left with after you win. You know, so if you've really, you guys have been at each other's throats for six months, you could have 20% of those supporters all go to the liberal party because they just cannot handle you when you're finished. And uh, I'm worried about that. I'm worried about what's going to be left to that party when it's done. And we're getting so polarized, but I don't have a solution for that one. That's a, like so many areas. It's a lot easier to point out the problem than the solution. Yeah, for sure. With, with Polyev, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, I think he's softened his touch on a lot of things, including the Bank of Canada. I think somebody within his own party and maybe even the Liberal Party went to him and said, uh, gave him the people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones kind of speech. Um, uh, and who else is there? So there's Leslyn Lewis again. I mean, I think, again, she would be of uh, somebody that most conservatives could get behind. I was kind of surprised she didn't win last time, actually. What are your thoughts on her? Well, she certainly came unexpectedly up in the last one, you know. I mean, she was impressive, but nobody really thought she'd be such a, a strong contender, I think, especially as a novice politically running like that. I mean, she's a, a well-educated, uh, ambitious woman and, and well-spoken, so we knew you were, she was capable. It wouldn't have the, the, you wouldn't have thought she'd have the support base and experience. I don't think, I don't think she's grabbing another base this time around, though. Uh, at least I'm not feeling it. And uh, she's carved out her niche, particularly in the, the socially conservative end of things, and, and not in an extreme by any means, but she's not afraid to open up and talk about the abortion question and things like that. And that's going to pull a, a degree of support to her, but it's not going to pull her a winning number. Um, but, I mean, uh, you don't want to underestimate her. That happens. So we'll, we'll see what, ha what happens this time. And then Ed Babber, uh, I think he's doing very well for himself and establishing himself. I mean, he kind of uh, scorched the earth in the, the Ontario legislature or, you know, provincial parliament where, where his relationship with Ford fell apart based on uh, opposition to the COVID mandates and things like that. But he's come across as very rational, actually, and controlled and smart in the, in this race. So he's positioning himself well for a good position within the party as a member of parliament and kind of rebranding as a federal politician. He's, again, no contender to win. Uh, HSN, similarly, you know, he, he was a backbencher that people hadn't really heard of that much. He's gained some profile. I mean, that's just political play, and he's staying rational and reasonable so that whatever happens, he's probably, you know, assume the Conservatives ever get into power, he, he'd be well-placed for a cabinet position or something like that. And then Brown, <laughs> Brown's a stalking horse candidate. They'll, they'll deny that to the end, but that's the, you can tell at the debates. He's just put in there as a spoiler. He's there as an attack dog to go after Polyev, and that's all he's done right from day one. Um, I'll put my prediction in right now. He's going to drop out before the end of this race. And uh, he's already uh, had members, of, you know, his, the MPs who were supporting him have backed away. He's done his job. He, there, I went and lobbed all my bombs at him. Membership sales are finished now. 
Because, uh, I mean, he hasn't been touring. He hasn't been talking to media. He was just there as that spoiler. So he's not going to win this thing. Uh, you know, credit where due uh, on power and politics on CBC. They put him to the question the other day over and over. Like, well, because <laughs> the deadline's coming up. If he's going to run for mayor of Brampton again. And he wouldn't answer. He kept saying, you know, well, well, I don't He just kept talking in circles and talking in circles because he can't say that he's going to run for it again because that's admitting he's going to lose the leadership. But uh, the, the timeline's approaching him. And that, that's why I think, again, he's going to he's just going to step out of this race altogether pretty soon. Right. He he's the one I know the least about. So I appreciate appreciate you telling us telling us that about him. Um, what else? Is there anything else in the headlines we should that? uh that I haven't been able to touch on? Yeah, well, I mean, getting a little more localized in Alberta, I know you want to stay national, but I mean, the thing I've been infuriated with was the, the we're seeing the ambulance care uh, finally getting to a, a head and people realizing that we've got a system that is broken badly uh, and it's been actually repugnant to watch our political leaders all pointing their fingers at each other because a, a woman died minutes away from the biggest hospital in Alberta. She bled out and she couldn't get an ambulance uh, faster than over half an hour. And uh, it was pointless. It was completely pointless. It was a trauma that most definitely probably could have saved her with, with quick enough intervention. And uh, they're still not asking. The, there's not even questions that need to be asked. So we got the usual crap out of the UCP. I get worked up when I think about this because their response, now that they see they got political disaster, we're going to hold an inquiry. We'll give you the results in four months. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. And, and we've been screaming this from the rooftops and they, not enough people are even talking about it. They're talking about, well, did something fall apart in dispatch or something like that? It sounds like there were some issues. But the other news item that came out that not enough people are talking about is 18 ambulances were in hospitals at the time when this incident happened, all stuck because they couldn't offload their, passengers, their, their, their patients because the hospital wouldn't sign off and take them. That's the problem. No matter how good your dispatch is, if all these paramedics are doing hallway care playing nurse, they can't come out and help people. And this goes all the way back to well, it's when you centralize authority, what's happened. And, and it's all under Alberta Health Services. It used to be the municipalities. And uh, the, city, the cities have been stealing the municipal ambulances here in Prittis and right on the edge of the city. Our ambulance is never here. It's always in the city uh, because, because the bigger central power pulls the resources into itself. And because of that, AHS uh, is terrified of the nurses union. That makes them quiver in their boots. Well, if they suddenly take away that resource they've had of all these hallway care workers that have been taking the pressure off the nurses in the emergency area, the union's going to light their hair on fire. So we got a complicated problem going on here, and we still got too many, you know, chicken crap politicians who don't want to take it on. And now an old woman has died because of this pointlessly, and they still won't talk about the real solutions. So that's pretty frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. I did an episode with uh, Tim Mowen former leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada, who is a uh, paramedic and a firefighter. And this was the exact problem he talked about. Like, And it was one of our longest episodes. Um, he went into a lot of detail. I'm, I'm not sure what number it is, but listeners can go back and find that one. It was the second episode I did with Tim Mullen. That looks like uh, we covered en enough material uh, to get the listeners caught up on some of the main things that have been making headlines over the last couple of weeks while well, I've been uh, wasting time talking philosophy and uh, libertarian stuff. But uh, thanks. Oh, that's good stuff, too. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But uh, thanks a lot for coming on, Corey. It's always great. Oh, always a pleasure. That was Corey Morgan. 
You can catch his show, Triggered, Monday to Friday at the Western Standard. You can follow me on Twitter at Darcy Giroux. And to make sure you never miss an episode of the Darcy Giroux podcast, subscribe on Substack. Substack.